0: It has been, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's been three weeks since we found ourselves in the book of Genesis. And so we'll be in Genesis 25. We, we covered briefly the birth of Jacob and Esau. And then I think the following Sunday, uh, Kristen and I were gone and, and Santana uh, filled the pulpit and the next sunday was a gideon sunday and last sunday we were in first peter reading and kind of praying uh, through that chapter and so just briefly i'm not this is not going to be a summary of 25 chapters but just to kind of jog the memory of where we where we were when we left off we when we looked at the birth of jacob and esau we covered that Rebecca was told two nations are within your womb. And we we covered the the idea of lineage really is what we did. We started with Adam and Eve, obviously, where we must start. We covered Cain and Abel, Seth, specifically Cain and Seth. And then we covered the lineages on through Noah. And then we had his three sons. And one of them led to the cursed line of, of Canaan. And then from the others, we looked at their lineages, ultimately on down through Abraham. And we got to the call of Abraham. But we covered specifically this idea of, of lineage that really from the beginning, we, we see this, this theme, this concept of the godly lineage of, uh, of, of God's people, those who have found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we see the, the ungodly lineage. And we even looked at Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac being the promised son that was promised to Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. But from Abraham and Hagar, we have Ishmael. And we saw that, that Ishmael, even though he was not a child of the promise and he was not included in the, in the covenant promises to Abraham, that God still took care of Ishmael. And he, became, he became a great and mighty man with, with twelve sons. And that's, that's really more or less, without going too deep into it and trying to repreach preach that, that sermon, we just looked at the concept of God's people and those who are not God's people. We looked at the godly lineage versus an, an ungodly lineage. And we covered that it was, it was God's plan. It was God's will. God did not ask Rebecca or Isaac, well which child do you want to be the one that the promises continue through which child would you have me choose God just declared to Rebecca that there's two nations within your womb and the the older will serve the younger and we did briefly talk about with our own children in a in a practical sense us here today those of us with children and And even those of us that our children are are grown and they have families of their own. When we think about God's freedom even with our own children. Are we okay with that? Do we submit to the fact that God is free to do with our own children. As he wishes and as he chooses because ultimately they are his children not ours. And so today as we cover really these same verses. We're going to ask a few more questions that go even deeper than that. But first we'll read from Genesis 25 starting in, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramaean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed. Behold there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out with his hand. Holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old. When she bore them. The older will serve the younger. Two nations and so. With the two nations we immediately. Again I hope our memories are are kind of jogged a little bit there. And we say okay well. Two nations. So two lineages. Jacob and Esau. And just to kind of give a a spoiler real quick. Eventually at some point in Esau's life. he He will go out and he will marry an Ishmaelite. Ishmaelite of Ishmael. It was of Hagar. So. The, a people group that is not really included in the covenant promises given to Abraham. And those promises are passed to Isaac and reiterated with Isaac. And then from Isaac, those covenant promises from God to his people, they will be carried on and they will be reiterated to Jacob, not Esau. Which even that in and of itself, in a very straightforward, simplistic manner, you say, well, well, in these days, wasn't, wasn't the firstborn wasn't the oldest one like entitled to all of the blessing and to all of the inheritance? And and isn't that wasn't that their tradition, wasn't that their culture? That the oldest would receive the blessing, would receive the birthright, would receive the inheritance? And the answer is yes. And so right out of the gate with this, we can say, okay, well, well, God is doing some things here that go against earthly tradition, against earthly culture. God here is kind of exercising his freedom to do as he pleases. God here is really showing us once again that he is God. And he does as he pleases. And he accomplishes things as he decides he wants them to be accomplished. You can even look at Abraham. In the book of of Joshua we're reminded at the very end of Joshua when... Joshua, when he is actually addressing the people, he he reminds us Abraham was the child of pagan parents. And yet God chose Abraham. There was there was no really good earthly reason for God to choose Abraham other than it was the good pleasure of his will to do so. God who calls into existence things that don't exist. The nation of Israel didn't exist. The nation of Israel did not have a father Abraham. Because Abraham was not an Israelite. Until God called him and said. I will make of you a great nation. You will be the father of a great nation. And in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And you will have a son. Not only did Isaac not exist. Sarah was barren. And Abraham was old. There was no real reason for God to give Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Other than it was the good pleasure of his will to do so. And Isaac was the promised son that God himself provided. So that the nation of Israel would come into existence. Now we come to Jacob and Esau. For any of us who are familiar with with the life of Jacob and Esau. And even how... Esau gives up his birthright and how Jacob and Rebekah come up with a plan to trick Isaac and to secure that birthright and to secure those blessings. Jacob was a trickster. <laughs> Jacob was a bit mischievous. And so not only was he the younger. But. But. In the limited information we're given about their childhood and things of that nature. We would say, well, Jacob, he was a trickster. Why, why, why would God choose him to receive the blessing? He actually seems to be a pretty dishonest little fella. He doesn't seem to have the highest moral compass. He doesn't seem to have the best character traits, as it were. Why would God choose Jacob and not Esau? It makes more sense to choose Esau. Esau is the oldest anyway. Esau is good at going out and hunting wild game. And and, and from that game he provides food. He provides sustenance. He seems to be a real man's man. Seems to be a hard worker. Seems to be a great hunter. Why wouldn't God just choose Esau? It just makes more sense. God's ways are not our ways. And he chose Jacob. The trickster, the supplanter, the mischievous one, the one who seems to be a bit dishonest in his handlings and in his dealings. And Rebecca and Isaac aren't given a say in this. In fact, he's declaring this, he's decreeing this before the children are even born. Rebecca inquired of the Lord, why is it this way? Why are they struggling so much within me? He says, there's two nations. One will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. So a few questions that I want us to ponder as we go through this sermon today. Ultimately, is God free to do as he pleases With whom he pleases. When he pleases. Throughout this study in Genesis. You've heard me say three words. Over and over again. God is God. And that's one of those statements. That as Christians. We are compelled to agree with that statement. Because somebody who does not agree with that statement. You're going to have a hard time convincing me. That they're really a believer. Somebody who kicks back against the phrase. God is God. They can't really back up. That they're also a Christian. And a follower of Christ. Because oh I've got a problem with God being God. Okay well that that pretty much defeats your whole defense. Of saying that you're a believer and you trust in God. So on the surface level somebody says God is God. The preacher says God is God. And the people are compelled to say Amen. But once we start really digging in deep. And looking at some of the roots of that statement. We will find that even believers at times will talk about things that God does or how God acts or how God works in a particular situation. And we as Christians sometimes, let's just be honest, we kind of have to take our time and process through some stuff. We've got to really work through some stuff. And and ultimately what we're asking ourselves is, are we okay with God doing this? Is this the God that we serve? And so the first question, is God free to do as He pleases, with whom He pleases, when He pleases? And that leads into the second question. Does God, does the God of all creation have to conform to our notions of who we believe He should be? And again, the obvious answer to that is, well, no, He's he's God, He can do whatever He wants. He wants. He doesn't have to conform to my notions of, of who God should be. <laughs> but if we dig a little bit deeper sometimes, and if we're honest, I think we would all admit that there's certain parts of Scripture and there's certain things that take place in our life that cause us to we we react or we think things that really what we're doing is, God, I wish you were more like the God I have in my head. God, I wish you were more like the God that I've come up with in my own heart. And so we need to ask ourselves the question. And we need to settle this within ourselves. Does God have to conform to the notion, to our notions that we have of who God should be? Something that you'll hear non-believers say at times is that, well, if God was like this... I would believe. Or you'll hear people say. I could never worship a God like that. Which is to say. If God was more like this. That I've come up with. Then I would worship him. I could never worship a God like that. Meaning. I could never actually worship the God of scripture. <clears throat> Which we would say yes. That's the very problem. So. So. Is God, ple- is God free to do as He pleases, with whom He pleases, when He pleases? And does God have to conform to our notions of who He is and who we wish that He was? So with that being said, let's turn to Romans 9. Jacob and Esau are brought up again here in Romans 9. And we'll begin in verse 1. Because it is important for us to ponder the reasons why. Why God would choose Jacob, not Esau. Why God would choose to bestow the covenant promises and and pass them on through Jacob and not Esau. What's the point of that? What's the significance of that? Is there any other biblical doctrines that that we need to think of? When we look at this birth of Jacob and Esau, why was it pronounced? Why did he tell Rebekah before they were even born? Why didn't he just tell them later? Is it is it significant that he, that he told this information before they were ever even born? Is there anywhere else in Scripture that talks about Jacob and Esau before they were ever even born? The answer is yes, in Romans 9. Romans 9 starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Paul here in the book of Romans, this, this great book where he clearly articulates the gospel and he digs deep into the true gospel that those who are of the faith are the children of Abraham and that no man has ever been justified before God except through faith and this coming on the tail end of Romans chapter 8 where we, where we have such great promises that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. To those who love Him. Where we have such great promises that, that who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then the very end of chapter 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you have this beautiful testimony and this beautiful proclamation of of God's love towards his people and the fact that nothing can separate the people of God from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then right after that, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You want to talk about a roller coaster of just... Ah, the, the grace and the mercy of God. The salvific love of God. The steadfast love of God which endures forever. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. You say, wow, what, what could cause Paul to have unceasing anguish in his heart? He was just talking about the love of God. And how nothing can separate us. What on earth? Could cause Paul to have unceasing anguish in his heart. That's the best news I've ever heard. And he's got unceasing anguish. What gives? Where's this anguish coming from? I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's key right there. Paul has an unceasing anguish. For his kinsmen in the flesh, the Israelites, the Jews who rejected Christ, who were still rejecting Christ, who were still mocking and rebelling against the authority of Christ, who were outside of the true family of God spiritually through faith. And they were resting in their works. They were resting in their flesh. Claiming that they were the people of God. Yet they themselves are cut off from God. Because they have no faith. And that causes Paul unceasing anguish. To the extent that Paul says I wish it was me. I wish I could be cut off. So that they would be saved. Anguish of heart. He wants his kinsmen to know about that love that he was just proclaiming in chapter 8, that love from which nothing can separate. But they do not know that love. They are not walking in faith, they are rejecting, they are walking in unbelief. And then he says, They are Israelites. To them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Consider Israel's heritage, consider their history. Abraham, adopted as a child of God and, and given the promises, you are mine, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Israel wouldn't exist if God would not have called Abraham the glory. The covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Consider the exodus. They were let out with great signs and wonders. They were led out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. The glory, the presence of God actually with them in the wilderness. The covenants, the giving of the law. God literally gave His word to His people. He gave the law, gave the covenants to His people. Of all the people on the earth. God did not give His word, did not give His... Covenants did not give his promises to the Egyptians, to the Amalekites, to the Amorites, to the Moabites, to the Canaanites. No, of all the people on the earth, God gave his law and his covenants. God gave his words to his people. When Moses came down from that mountain with the Ten Commandments, he didn't make a trip back to Egypt to give the Ten Commandments to the Egyptians. He didn't give the Ten Commandments to the surrounding nations. Those Ten Commandments, that law was to God's people. God reveals Himself in a special, unique, redemptive way to His people alone. The worship. All the other nations worshiping their false gods. Worshipping their gods who cannot speak, who cannot hear, who cannot act, who cannot move because they are false gods. And they worship them and it's a false worship. It's a deceptive worship. God's people alone know what true worship is. Because only God's people alone worship the true God. They also had the patriarchs. Father Abraham, as mentioned earlier. Father Abraham, which for many of us alive today, we we hear Father Abraham and we start singing that silly, repetitive children's church song and now it's going to be stuck in our head the rest of the day. But nevertheless, Father Abraham. The patriarchs. Moses. David. The children of Israel could look back and say... Look at the great leaders. Look at the great men. Look at the patriarchs that God has given us. Look at our heritage. Look at our history. Even from their race, according to the flesh, Christ Jesus came from that line. It started with Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And throughout that line, throughout Israel, throughout that nation of Israel came The promised son. The true promised son. Not Isaac. But Christ himself. The one who alone. Could crush the head of the serpent. And yet. It is this people. Who by a majority. Rejected Christ. And yelled out. Crucify him. Those Israelites according to the flesh do not know the love of God which Paul was just proclaiming in Romans 8. If there is anything that should cause us unceasing anguish, when we consider our loved ones, family members, friends, co-workers, people in the community when we look out across Glenville, Tattnall County, and we understand that it is, it is obvious that there are many right here among us that are separated from God, that are walking in unbelief. That should cause us anguish in our hearts. We say, God, please be merciful. God, open their eyes that they may see and their ears that they may hear. God, bring many sons and daughters to salvation through the proclamation of the gospel. And we should be driven to proclaim truth to them. They don't know the love of God that we claim that we have experienced. That we claim that we have received. And oh, how foolish it would be. To claim to have taste and seen that the Lord is good. And not share it. And not proclaim it. How selfish and how hateful. Do we have to be. Not to share the message of the cross. But we move forward. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all. Who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Those are the words of the Lord to Abraham. No, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child. It's not Ishmael. You and Sarah are going to have a child. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will conceive. And she did. God kept His word. God kept His promise. God brought life where there was no life. A barren womb. Unable to carry life. God said, you will conceive. There will be life. This is how Isaac. Is brought into the world. A miracle. God's grace. God's provision. Verse 10. Not only so. But also when Rebecca had conceived children. By one man. Our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born. And had done nothing. Either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election. Might continue. Not because of works. But because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that is not a statement of God just saying, I hate Esau. That was an idiom that was used to take something to the nth degree, as we would say, to, to take something to the extreme so that you get the point. In the same way that Jesus would say, unless a man Hates his father and his mother. He is not worthy to follow me. Well, does that mean that Jesus taught that his children should hate their mom and their dad? Of course not. Honor your father and mother. Which is the first commandment with promise. What was Jesus explaining there? Our love and our affection and our commitment to Christ. Should overshadow even our love and our commitment to our mother and father. To the extent that our love and our affections for Christ. When viewed, when viewed by the world, it may even cause people to say, well, they must hate their mama and their daddy because they're not paying attention to them. They're just following Jesus. But what does this phrase mean here with Jacob and Esau? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The covenant promises given to Abraham. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I'll make you the father of a great nation. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Those are great and mighty promises. These are promises that are connected with the coming Messiah himself. And those promises are bestowed upon Jacob. Not Esau. Is God free to do as he pleases with whom he pleases when he pleases. Because in our. Human minds. That cannot fully comprehend and understand. The mind of God. The wisdom of God. We go right back to. Okay but I want to know why. What was the reason. What was the reason that God chose Jacob and not Esau. there has got to be a reason. There's got to be like a very specific reason. And I want to know why. Because here again, Esau was the oldest. Why didn't God choose him? That's who it should have gone to. Esau was a hunter, a man's man. He hunted wild game. He was good at it. He provided sustenance for his family by going out and killing game and, and making stew. Seems to be a good man, hard working. Jacob, on the other hand, trickster, deceiver, supplanter. There's no way that God would choose him. I mean, just look at his track record. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. But because of him. Who calls. If God had never called Abraham out of his homeland. And given his promise to him. Then there would be no father Abraham. Abraham would have still existed. But we wouldn't remember him as father Abraham. We wouldn't remember him as. The father of the. Israelite people. But because of God who calls. He called Abraham. Called the nation of Israel into existence. And so that his purpose of election might continue. That's why Jacob was chosen. The older will serve the younger. Jacob have I loved. Esau. Have I hated. In our minds. And this is really. This is really the main point of the sermon today. We're going to continue to talk about this next week. But I really just want us to ponder that question today. Because I know, I know what it's like to wrestle with things that we come across in Scripture that maybe we didn't even know they were there to begin with. Or maybe we did know certain portions of Scripture are there, we just don't like to go there. We don't like to look into those passages of Scripture because they... They confuse us. They, they, they make us aware that there's passages that we don't yet fully understand. And that kind of intimidates us. Or that makes us fearful. Or perhaps we've been told not to look at certain passages of scripture. Because those are dangerous passages of scripture. And so we kind of. Well I, I was told those are dangerous. So I don't look into them. When we read things like. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. The question Is this. As Christians. The God that we worship. The God that's in our head. The God that we picture in our head. The God that we have affections for in our heart. Are we willing to be diligent. And ask ourselves the question. Am I worshiping the God of scripture. As he has revealed himself. Or am I worshiping what I think I ought to worship? What I think I need to worship? And I'm not saying that as a challenge. I don't want anybody to doubt their salvation or anything like that. I just want us to think about that question. And are we willing to do the diligent work of saying, I want to worship the God of scripture. I want to worship the true God of all creation as he has revealed himself. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we okay with God doing as He pleases, with whom He pleases, when He pleases? Does God have to conform to our notions of who God should be? Or or should we be saying, well, who I understand God to be and who I believe God to be has to be, must be conformed to how God has revealed Himself? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul here under the under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's as he knows. Well when I say this. The people reading this letter might say. Well that's not fair. That is not fair for God to choose Jacob. And not Esau. Before they're ever even born. Before they ever did anything good or bad. That's not fair. That is injustice. God can't do that. And so here again. The underlying question there is. Does God have to conform to our notions of who God is? Do we get to look at what God does in Scripture and say, That is unjust. He can't do that. And here Paul knows. Again, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Paul knows. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. If we ever begin to think in our hearts and in our minds... That, well, you know, sometimes God just does stuff that's unjust. God forbid. By no means. God is a just God. If we ever read something in Scripture that makes us start thinking, well, that was a little unjust. We need to understand the problem is with us, not with God and not with Scripture. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Pause. Ask yourself another question. Are we okay with God having mercy on whomever He desires to have mercy and having compassion on whomever He desires to have compassion? Furthermore, as we will read in a moment, are we okay with God hardening whomever He wishes to harden? These are questions. I don't expect us to have answers for this right now. Again, as your pastor, I'm simply asking you consider these things. Think about them. Meditate upon them. Study them out. God is God. And it is so easy for us to say, Amen. God is God. But we come to certain passages of Scripture. That they ought to cause us to slow down and say, okay, what does this mean? What are we talking about here? Am I okay with this? And I will clarify, when I say, are we okay with this? Let it be known. I'm not, I'm not saying that ultimately it's really if we decide we're okay with it or if we decide we're not okay with it. If we ask ourselves the question, am I okay with this? And we come down on the side of the fence that says, no, I don't really think I am okay with this. Then here's the, here's the thing. We are rejecting God as he has revealed himself. And if we are rejecting God as he has revealed himself. Then there is still yet a problem within our own hearts. And a problem within our own minds. So I'm not saying that it's okay. It's okay to not be okay with God as he has revealed himself. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to ask ourselves these questions. So that we can grow and mature and study. And by asking ourselves these questions, I have the utmost faith in God, His Spirit, to lead us into all truth. Because we have that promise in Scripture. That His Spirit, the Comforter, will lead us into all truth. And so we continue reading. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So here's the second time Paul knows what's coming. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if, God, if God makes it be this way, If God has compassion on who He has compassion and He hardens whoever He's hardened, how can God punish somebody or how can God hold somebody accountable for what they're doing when God's the one who hardened them? How in the world does Paul know that this is coming? How in the world does the Spirit of God prompt Paul to write this? Do you think God knows His creation? Do you think God knows the effects of the fall of sin? Do you think God knows what the fleshly response to some of these things will be? How our flesh will kick back against some of these things? And so Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Because who can resist his will? And Paul's response is this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, Paul's answer to this question is not really an answer. Paul doesn't give them details or anything like that. Paul doesn't really explain all the ins and the outs of it. Paul simply says, who are you to answer to God? Now, let's all be honest. I don't think there's a one of us here that if we were to ask a question to somebody and they looked back at us and they said, know your place. I don't think there's a one of us that would say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I, I love being told stuff like that. Th- thank you for helping me understand. No, we would know my place. What? We would kind of want to puff our chest out a little bit and say, oh, no, I ask you a question and you're going to give me an answer. And how foolish we would be to command that from God who made us, who molded us. Is God not free to do as he wishes? And so Paul says, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And Paul's answer to that is, who are you to answer to God, O man? In other words, know your place. You are not the potter. You are the clay. Does the clay get to ask the potter, Why did you make me this way? Why have you done this thing? No. And again, let's all just be very honest with one another. Our human nature, when we are told, You don't get to do that, you can't go there. You don't get an answer to that question. Our human flesh. We hate that. We want to kick back against that so hard. And say no. I will go there. I will say that. I will do that. You can't stop me. Who are you oh man. Who am I oh man. To answer to God. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul gives a little bit broader of an answer But this answer is in the form of a what if. You will say to me then. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul says. What if God desiring. Desiring to show his wrath and make his power known. Well pause. Let's ask another question. The God that we have in our own mind. Are we okay with the fact that God, at times, God desires to show His wrath? God desires to make His power known. Because a lot of times in the world we live in today, all anybody wants to talk about is, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. Well, because God is love, He has to have a holy hatred towards sin. And his anger burns hot. And his wrath will be poured out upon all sin and upon all wrongdoing. Are we okay with a God who at times desires to show his wrath and to show his power? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, so that, or in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So to close this morning, with all of that in mind, Let's consider God's wrath and His grace and mercy side by side up against one another just from Genesis. God's wrath was shown upon the serpent in the extent that He told the serpent your head will be crushed. God's wrath was shown towards the sacrifice that was made to clothe Adam and Eve because that sacrifice had to be sacrificed. A death had to take place. So God's wrath was poured out upon the sacrifice so that Adam and Eve could be covered God's wrath was shown in the flood when all of creation was destroyed except for Noah and his three sons and their family God's wrath was even displayed in the tower of Babel when it was destroyed and all all of the peoples were scattered and their languages were confused so using those same four examples God's wrath was displayed when the serpent was promised that his head would be crushed. And that takes us straight to his grace and his mercy. Because the head of the serpent would be crushed, sin and death are defeated. Wrath, grace and mercy. God's wrath was poured out upon that sacrifice that was made. Because that sacrifice was made, Adam and Eve had a covering for their sin and shame. Wrath, grace and mercy. God's wrath was shown in the flood when all, all of creation was destroyed except for Noah and his family. Noah and his family got off the ark. It was as if there was a new creation. The earth had been cleansed of unrighteousness and sinfulness. Wrath, grace and mercy. Tower of Babel was destroyed. <laughs> that project was put to an end, an abrupt end. People were scattered, their languages were confused. But through the gospel, all are made one in Christ Jesus. And the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God's wrath, His great, up against His grace. And his mercy. And is that not exactly what Paul said? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that his glory might be shown to the vessels of mercy? What we need to understand when we read of things that take place in Scripture that are great judgment, the flood, the plagues on Egypt. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When we think about those things. Something within us should acknowledge. That's what my sin deserves. That's what I deserve. Because those places were punished. Those places were destroyed because of sin. I'm a sinner. I sin. That's what I deserve. Why have I not received that? God why are you not pouring out your wrath on me? And the answer is. Because his wrath was poured out upon the son. Who died for the sins of all who believe. And so his steadfast love is upon us. Through the sacrifice of his son. Because the head of the serpent has been crushed. Because sin and death have been defeated. Because a covering has been provided. Because we have been cleansed from our sins. Because we have been united with Christ. We are His. And it's only when we see the deep, dark blackness of sin for what it truly is. And what we truly deserve. That we will understand. Oh, how great a salvation has been given us. Oh, what great mercy. Oh, what great grace. Dare I say, amazing grace has been bestowed upon us. Because we deserve the wrath of God. But He has shown mercy. And finally, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, I don't know what to think about all this. Some may even be sitting here saying, I don't like when stuff like this comes up. I don't know how I feel about it. Or I do know how I feel about it and I don't like talking about it. So Caleb, what do you want me to do with the sermon today? Think through it. Study the scriptures, see what God has spoken in His word. But if you're here today and you say, Well, anytime I think about elect or whatever, I think, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Or, or I kind of get nervous because I don't really know. If you have turned from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, if as you sit here right now, you say, I have faith. That Christ has saved me. He is the Son of God. He is my Redeemer. Then make no doubt about it. You're one of the elect. To quote Martin Luther. Reformation Day was not too long ago. But to quote Martin Luther. It's really not that complicated. If you desire Christ. You are one of the elect. It really is that simple. Last question. You say what if I I don't think that way. What if I don't submit to that understanding of predestination and election and stuff like that, that's fine. I'm not here to try to force you to think a certain way. Settle your mind on this. Do you believe? If you say, I don't like thinking about all that stuff because it starts to confuse me, then don't, don't think about that right now. Ask yourself this question. Do you believe? Do you believe that the only hope for salvation from your sin is Christ alone? Do you acknowledge that your sin merits the wrath of God? But you desire salvation from that. You desire a savior. Then turn from that sin and cling to Christ. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world who says... All who believe will be saved. Do you believe? And if you say yes. You say yes. I I have faith. I believe. I know that salvation is in none other. Than Christ alone. And my hope and my faith are in him. Then rest in that. Rest in that. We don't have to get so caught up with words like election. That we're like I just want to. Rest your souls. Rest your heart and rest your mind. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. When it comes to doctrine like this, we as a church, listen, we'll study these things together. We'll work through these passages together and God will bless that. God will increase our understanding. He will increase our, our learning, our wisdom. But the one thing that we can't say, well, that can wait till next week or that can wait or we'll get there. We'll get there. The one thing that can't wait. Salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So if you've heard everything I've talked about today and you're sitting there with you got questions racing through your mind, I would encourage you right now at the end of the sermon. Focus on this. Do you believe? Have you turned from your sin? And found solace in Christ. Have you run to Christ and do you now cling to Him for your salvation? Because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is not something that we can say, well, we'll talk about that more next week or today. Do you believe? May God be glorified. In the study of His Word and through this sermon today, thank you all as always for being so attentive. Let's close in a word of prayer.